holy and immense God. The one who rules and reigns. The one to whom every soul will give an account. We're before you tonight and we give you thanks and praise for the breath that you've given us. And we thank you especially for the gift of your son, our savior, the lamb who we've just been singing about, the one who died to take away the sins of the world. And we thank you, Lord, that your revelation of yourself and of your son is is revealed in your word. And every aspect of your word points to your great revelation, to your great son. And we ask, uh, Lord, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would show us wonderful things in your word that you would use me, this weak vessel, to speak your glorious truth and that we, your people, would be built up and that we would worship and adore King Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, let me uh, add my welcome. For those that don't know me, my name's Ashley and I serve as uh, the assistant pastor here. It's a pleasure to, to be here and it's a privilege to get to come and stand and teach God's word. Um, Thank you, Angus, for reading that passage. A few tricky words in there, but you did well, brother. Gregor became a Christian in his teens. He lives a fairly normal life. Goes to work during the week, enjoys sports, goes to church at the weekends. Lately, though, he's been racked with guilt. He thinks constantly about sins committed before he was even a Christian. But he thinks particularly of the sins committed whilst having been a Christian. He plays them in his mind again and again and and his conscience is accused. And the guilt actually leads him to destructive behaviours, overeating, binge watching, going onto websites that he really should avoid. And then these behaviours end up incurring more guilt. Uh, what about Sahai? Uh, Sahai is a godly woman. Uh, she's been a Christian since she was nine. Uh, and over the past 30 years, she has come to know and grow in Jesus in deep and intimate ways. Uh, she's a regular attender of church and growth group, and she seeks to read her Bible and pray daily and tries to apply what she learns. But recently, Sahai has become really discouraged Because she realizes that sin in her life goes so, so deep. She's fearful. She's fearful of the opinions of others. And this influences her decision making. She's fearful of the future, which takes away her joy in the present at times. Most of all, she's fearful of death. And there's Helen. Helen wakes up and feels low again. She feels like she's always fighting. Her boss has openly said that she, th- uh, that she thinks Christians are bigots and therefore is making her job really difficult. Her teenage son doesn't actually want to know about Jesus, doesn't want to come to church. And so once again, she is tempted to feel disappointment, disappointment in God, disappointment with the lot that she's been given in life. She feels like she's always fighting. I wonder what you might say 
if you met Gregor or Sahai or Helen in the church family, what would you say to them? How would you encourage them? How would you counsel them? Maybe these are some of the questions or some of the feelings that you have. Well, our text this evening will help us think through some of these realities. Um, so if you're coming in for one of the first times and you're jumping into to Joshua, uh, uh, let's just try and recap and uh, remind ourselves. Maybe actually you've been here for the whole series, but you need reminding too about where we are in the book of Joshua. Last time we preached was in February, so um, I feel like I need reminding too. Uh, the summary of the book of Joshua, if we were to try and summarize it in a phrase, uh, the promise keeping God delivers. The promise keeping God delivers. And the big promise in Joshua is the promise of the land. And Joshua uh, structures nicely into four parts. If it was a, a TV program, it would be made into a, a four-part docudrama series on Channel 4. Part 1, uh, chapters 1 to 5, is about entering the land. And part 2, the part that we're in now, the part that we're concluding now, involves taking the land. And you can join us next time as we think about the division of the land. But right now, like I said, we're concluding this second section. And what I want us to see, what I want to show to you, what I'm seeking by the strength of God and in his grace to show you is not dry history, but that this text that was just read to us actually points to Jesus Christ, to his achievement in winning our salvation, his defeat of our greatest enemies, sin and Satan and death, and that we can have the knowledge as his people that he continues to fight for us every day. And he's the one who's going to lead us into eternal life. And so um, I've tried to summarize these chapters. Uh, this is what we do as preachers. We try and come up with a big, a big theme of what the, what the text is saying and then how we might apply it. And the big theme that I've come away with, if you're taking notes, is that the Lord devotes to destruction all rival kings placing them under Joshua and Israel's feet, giving his people rest from war. So the Lord devotes to destruction all rival kings, placing them under Joshua's feet, giving his people rest from war. And so then as we think about applying it to ourselves as, a, as Christians and as a church family, I've gone for this, it's that Jesus' resurrection has disarmed the enemy, and he continues to fight, placing all rivals beneath his feet. And church family, where to look to him. Jesus' resurrection has disarmed the enemy. And he continues to fight, placing all rivals beneath his feet. Church, let's look to him. Okay. So what we're going to see in uh, verses, uh, you'll find it really helpful, by the way, to have your Bibles open as we work through this text. Um, in verses 16 to 27 of chapter 10, what we're going to see here is going to be the lens that we're going to view the next two chapters through, okay? So we're going to look at it as promise and fulfillment. Promise, all enemies will be placed beneath your feet. This is chapters 10, verses 16 to 27. So <clears throat> there have been echoes throughout the book of Joshua of rival kings, if you've been reading through Joshua, if you've ever read through it, or if you've been with us at the beginning of the, the series, you'll have heard uh, rival kings, whether it's the king of Jericho or whether it's the king of Ai. In fact, this uh, specific section that started back in chapter 9, actually, uh, began with the banding together of kings west of the Jordan. And so but the theme of rival kings now kind of comes to a climax in the section that was just read out to us. 
Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of a king. Perhaps this is the image that pops into your mind. Uh, Being from the UK, we tend to think of monarchs in this way. Quite nice. A bit impotent, though. The odd royal wave. A good visit. Opening a community garden. All those kind things. But actually, kings in the ancient Near East, they weren't like King Charles or other modern monarchs. Actually, kings were warriors. They led their people out to battle. They were the ones who fought. They were the ones who ruled. Okay? So when we come across kings in this section, let's think ruler, warrior. So look with me at verse 16. Now, the five kings had fled and hidden in the cave of Machida. So you might recall that these are the same kings of the nations that came up against Gibeon in chapter 9. And verses 18 to 21 tell us that these kings' armies that they represent have now been scattered and defeated. And the kings themselves are now cowering in a cave. Look at me at verse 22. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought out the five kings out of the cave. The kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And Joshua begins to enact this kind of powerful, physical illustration. Just try and imagine it. These once proud, powerful, ruling warrior kings, sheepishly creeping out from their hiding cave, to be faced by Joshua and the leading men of Israel. Lay down in the dirt, he says. It's humiliating. Stretch your neck out, he says. It's fearful. Place your foot right there. It's dominating. Joshua says, verse 24, this is what the Lord will do to all the enemies that you're going to fight. It's a powerful image and no doubt etched into the minds of the leaders of Israel. Uh, One commentator said, um, a widespread ancient custom called for victorious kings to place their feet upon the necks of conquered enemies. But you don't really need to read a commentary, do you, actually, to, to know that. The symbol's clear enough. The guy with his face in the dust isn't wondering whether this is a good thing that's happening to him. It's quite clearly a symbol of victory. And so Joshua's victory and Israel's victory over these kings is immortalized in verse 26. They come under capital punishment, according to Deuteronomic law. They're put to death, they're hanged on five trees, and they're thrown into the cave where they were hidden. In a twist of irony, the place that they hoped that would be refuge for them, has actually become their grave. What's going on here? If you've walked in uh, to church for the first time and you're wondering what on earth is going on here, let me try and explain. One of the things that biblical authors do often in the Bible is that they will echo, they will point back to previous biblical narratives and they'll use them for their purposes. So watch out for this when you're reading your Bible on your own. Uh, But we've seen this already in Joshua, haven't we? We've seen Joshua echo the book of Exodus. We've seen Joshua echo the book of Numbers. And so as we look backwards now, actually this particular section is echoing Genesis chapter 14. And you might recall that that's the the, uh, within the Abraham narrative. Uh, What happens in that chapter is there are uh, five rival Canaanite kings. What do they do? Well, they join forces to make war. And they end up kidnapping Abraham's grandson, Lot. And so Abraham, he goes to war and he defeats these kings, rescuing his nephew. Who's Abraham? Why is that significant? Well, Abraham was, he was in effect, he was a new Adam. 
He was a, a royal-like figure. He was one who God pronounced blessings upon. He was the one who God um, pronounced that he would give him a land He's the one who was called to do battle against God's enemies in a land that God had given him in obedience to God's word. And so Joshua, here in chapter 10, he is being cast in a kingly, new Adamic light. Okay, this interpretation is strengthened. I'm not just pulling it out of my head. Look at verse 25 with me. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. That's the, uh, the ministry motif of Joshua, right? It's repeated so many times in chapter 1. And the means of Joshua's victory and the means that he can uh, definitely not be afraid and that he'll be victorious is by meditating upon what? Upon the word of God. Meditating upon the Torah. Be strong and courageous. You'll be victorious to the degree that you meditate upon and believe my word. And that's significant. That do not be afraid points us back to chapter 1. Joshua's commission, where he should be the one who meditates upon the law. And that text is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 17. And that's significant because that's the text that describes what a king should do. The king should be the one who takes God's law, who reads it through, who writes it out. And so Joshua is being cast in this kingly light. So what biblical authors do and what we should do as readers is we we kind of read backwards to see what the word of God has said about a particular section. But we also then look forwards. Another text that's informing this particular section that we're looking at is Psalm 110. You remember that's the famous psalm written by King David. He wrote it years later. And perhaps he actually had Joshua chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 in his mind. Remember, Psalm 110 is the one that declares the Lord's royal right hand figure will slay all enemy kings and that he'll place every enemy beneath his feet. The Lord said to my Lord, this is Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And this connection between Genesis 14 and Joshua 10 that we're reading now and Psalm 110 is made even stronger. Because Joshua, uh, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 are the only places in the Old Testament where we meet this unusual figure, Melchizedek. And so what, it seems to be, what seems to be happening here is that the leaders of Israel, God's people, what they needed to hear was a guarantee, a promise, a certainty that every enemy will be placed beneath their feet. And people of God, we need that same promise, don't we? We need that same encouragement in 2023. The New Testament authors, they rightly saw that the true subject of Psalm 110 and the true echo of Joshua 10 was in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts 2 in Peter's sermon, uh, he picks up that the resurrection of Christ, in the resurrection of Christ, God made Jesus both Lord and Messiah. He's now the exalted one. He sits at the right hand of God. He's the new Adam and the last Adam. And he is the one that every single enemy will be brought beneath his feet. And so I don't know what enemies you're facing today. I don't know uh, whether it's enemies from without, work colleagues, Enemies that you're facing at school that are putting pressure on you for your faith. Whether it's destructive enemies within. Deep sins that only you and God, your creator, know about. 
I don't know what rival rulers are looking to, to rule over your life that you're fighting. But we need to know this, that there is an exalted king at God's right hand who is both God and therefore has all power, and he is both man and therefore has all compassion for our weaknesses, and he has promised that every single enemy that we face will be placed beneath his feet as we submit to him. That's a promise, and it's true. But if we're honest, that just feels a bit too far in the future. Sometimes we just need some help here and now, don't we? Well, thankfully, we have a God who not only promises, but he's the one who fulfills those promises himself. So let's look at this next section, the fulfillment. The enemies are disarmed and defeated. This is 10 verse 28 through to 11 verse 23. So we've seen this promise that all enemies will be placed beneath Joshua and Israel's feet. And what we see over the the next few verses from verse 28 really until verse 39 is a montage, right? Right? Here's an example of a montage from one of my favorite Pixar films, the film Up. A montage, if you don't know what one is, is um, the process of selecting, editing, and piecing together uh, separate sections, usually in a film, uh, to form a continuous whole. Throughout Joshua so far, uh, we've slowed down significantly to particular battles, whether it was the the battle at Jericho in chapter 6 or the battle of Ai in chapter 8. And we're now moving at warp speed. Okay, verses 28 to 39 uh, show us this stylistic account of the southern conquest. And they repeat similar words and phrases. Have a look. uh, The phrase, and he captured, verse 28, 31, 35, 37. He captured its king, verse 30, 33, 37. He struck with the edge of the sword every person in it. And that phrase he devoted to destruction. And verse 42 is essentially a summary that underlies what we've just seen. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time. The pace of this campaign, it kind of elevates Israel to this kind of invincibility. And I don't know what you thought as we were reading that section. Maybe we feel sorry for the people that are at the end of these judgments. But uh, before we feel sorry for them, let's remember our three Ps. Number one, perversity. These nations that have been at the, the tip of the sword of Israel, that currently occupy this land, they're under divine judgment. They're under the judgment from God. Why? Because of their heinous sin. They've rejected the true and living God, and they've made idols of their own making. They sacrificed their children to the fire, They mix a perverse sensuality with worship of God. And in addition to this, these cities, they're not innocent bystanders because three of them belong to the rival kings that were at war with Joshua a few verses earlier. The perversity. Let's not forget God's patience. God has been patient. He has given this nation, these nations, time to repent. It's been uh, somewhere around 400 years since the revealing of uh, God's uh, purposes to Abraham. Longer, in fact, because of the wilderness wanderings. And all humanity, including these Canaanites, have been given a knowledge of God. God has revealed himself in the creation, in the things that he has made. They speak of his beauty and majesty and power. And he's given us revelation of himself in our conscience that speaks of him. And yet these people have suppressed this 
in their sin, and therefore, they're guilty. God has been patient with them. And I just want to take an aside right now um, to speak to you if you're not a Christian. If you've come in here today for the first time for some unknown reason, or you've been visiting this church for, for a long time, God is being infinitely patient with you. He has given you life and breath. He's given you every single day that you've had so far. But there is going to come an end to his patience. Either when Jesus returns or when you die. And today is the day that God is calling you to repentance. That is simply to turn away from living for yourself and turn to the God who has given you life and sustenance. What is separating you and all of the humanity, all of the humans from God, is our sin. Things that we've, things that we've done wrong, our, our behaviors, our attitudes, our inclinations. But God has made a way for us to be forgiven through sending his son. And for his son dying on the cross in the place of our sins. If you're here for the first time and you want to find out more about that, I would love to talk to you about that. Please do come and see me after the service. I'll be out in the foyer. I would love to talk to you more about that. If you don't want to come to and talk to me, then maybe talk to the person that's brought you. What does repentance mean? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? What does it mean to have my sins forgiven? We'd love to talk to you about that. So before we feel sorry for these nations, they're perverse. God has been patient. But let's not forget the purpose of what's going on in this book. So these rival kings and their wretched empires, they're to be removed because this land is going to be a new Eden. This is where God's chosen representative, Israel, are going to live and flourish. They are, they are to be placed in the land so that the, the superpowers either side of them can see what it looks like what a nation looks like to live and to flourish and to serve the living God whose word is life and whose ways are perfect. So that's the purpose. In fact, that's one of the reasons that they're capturing these cities and they're not just going around and burning them and destroying them. Uh, verse 11, uh, chapter 11, 13 makes a point of saying that they didn't burn these cities because they're to be redeemed for a good purpose. So, let's not feel sorry for them. But what's actually going on here? Well, one of the things that's going on here is this is a, a military tactical maneuver. So what Joshua and Israel are doing is they're disarming their enemies. Okay, so one of the moves that we've seen so far of the kings uh, within the uh, south is they've formed the coalition, haven't they? We've just seen that a few verses ago. But now, the various military strongholds throughout the south, they've been disarmed, their kings have been dismembered, and therefore, their forces are neutralized. Uh, as I was reading this, it reminded me of kind of alien invasion films. I'm sure you thought of that too. You know, you watch an alien invasion film, and what's one of the first things that these kind of super intelligent beings come and do? Well, they knock out Earth's communication forces, don't they? Usually the Pentagon, because everything's centered around America, and that's fine. But usually it's the Pentagon, um, or they might dis disable kind of the, the Chinese intelligence or the British intelligence. Why? Well, it's so that we can't form a coalition against these aliens. What Joshua and Israel are doing here is they are disarming and disabling the Canaanites' ability to form a coalition. You're thinking, yes, yeah, so what? 
Maybe you're thinking that. Okay, what does this mean? What does this mean for my life right now? Well, as we think as Christians, there are two particular significant applications and realities that point to our life. Right? Christ, our greater Joshua, the one who has promised to place every enemy beneath his feet, in his first coming, what did he come to do? He came to disarm our enemies. In Christ's death on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead, he defeated Satan. How? Well, Satan's only power against humanity is to accuse us, is to point out our sin, is to say, God, look at these people. You're holy. They're sinful. They should be judged. And so if Christ comes and dies on the cross for our sins and pays for them in full... Well, he's got nothing to accuse, has he? Because the legal debt that stood against us, the debt of our own sin, has been paid for. Colossians 2 picks this up. I'll read from verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. How? How? He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And what did he do? What was the result? And he disarmed the powers and the authorities. That's Satan and his minions. He disarmed the powers and authorities and he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. And so what Gregor needs in our introduction is this knowledge, right? That actually the legal debt of his sin has been dealt with by Christ on the cross. Maybe you need to know that this afternoon. Maybe your sin has been eating away at you. Maybe the guilt of what you have done and that you're doing is crushing you. And you need to hear that the legal debt, the sin that stands against you has been nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ in his perfect obedience, in, in his life's blood given for you has taken your sin and buried it. And so there is no, now no legal charge that stands against you as you trust in Jesus through repentance and faith. Perhaps what you need to do is recall the gospel to yourself daily, hourly if needs be. Set a reminder on your phone Legal, charge, counsel because of Christ. See Colossians 2. The sin that whispers into your ear, you're not good enough. Are you really a Christian? Say, no, I'm not good enough. But Christ's blood is more than good enough. He's made a way. His blood makes me righteous. The debt is now no longer stood against me because Christ paid for it in full. See, Joshua is teaching us that our enemies have been disarmed and therefore do not hold the same power over us. I think there's a second thing that it's teaching us here from this passage as well, that the Christian life is battle after battle. Now, if you have made um, it to a, a kind of height of maturity where you no longer face battles with sin, whether external, external or internal, please do come and speak to us. We'd love to know what your secret source is. But my hunch is that most Christians that have been walking with the Lord Jesus for any time know that the Christian life 
is battle after battle after battle. Look at the pattern for Israel. So yes, uh, there's a seeming sense of invincibility, but actually what happens is they they face this king, they capture this city, they, they, they win this battle, and then no sooner have they left that battle, they're facing another one, and then another, and then another, and then another. And I know for a fact that many of you are facing battles every day. The battle of your own sin that comes at you again and again and again. And so Helen's experience from our introduction, that she feels like the Christian life is a battle. Well, it's encouraging to know for Helen and for us that, well, this is the Christian experience. This is the Christian life. Our enemy, yes, has been disarmed. Their greatest weapon has been taken away, the guilt that stands against us. And yet, our enemies still persist. I think the reason, uh, verse is it 42, tells us the reason that Israel was successful was because the Lord fought for them. Read this with me. I think we need to. Chapter 10, verse 42. All these kings in the lands Joshua conquered in one campaign. Why? Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Unless God fights for us, unless Jesus Christ fights for us, we're going to lose. Uh, There was a quote uh, by um, a theologian called Joel Beakey, and he says this, to try and stop sinning without reference to Christ and his cross is as much folly as Israel trying to storm uh, any of the Canaanite fortresses without reference to the Lord, to his provision and promise. So to try and stop sinning, Christian, For you to try and stop that behavior, whatever it is that's crushing you, whatever it is that's dominating you, whatever it is that you feel you're coming up against again and again, to try and face that battle, to try and face that sin without reference to Christ and his cross, to that legal debt being nailed to it, is folly. I need to hear that. Maybe you need to hear that. The fighting doesn't stop there, though, does it? Uh, we, read, we carry on through chapter 11. Uh, there's been a reaction to Joshua and Israel's escapades. There's a, a rumble in the Canaanite jungle, as it were. Look with me at 11 verse 1. Um, there's a tactical change this time by the enemy, though. Uh, the pace seems to change, which actually makes it quite jarring. Uh, read with me from verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the kings of Shimron and Akshaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah, south of the Kinnereth, and in the western foothills, and Nahoth, Dor, and the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and to the Jebusites in all the hill country, to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. Verse 4, they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. See, this army is so vast, it's drawn from every region of the north of Canaan. All kinds of kings, it's a coalition of doom. And we're meant to feel the sheer force of this numerical horde. Armoured up to the eyeballs, 
They've got chariots and horses. It's reminiscent of Exodus. It's an echo of Exodus. And this awesome and fearful army swarms upon them like sand on the seashore. And yet look at verse 6. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. Because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them slain over to Israel. You're going to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. This is, like so many biblical battles, uh, a kind of anticlimax, right? The armies of the earth, they come to do war against the Lord, to defeat him and his anointed. And the Lord just kind of breathes a breath and they're destroyed. Verse 8, the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. He left none remaining. And Joshua did to them all that the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. I love this uh, note in verse 10 as well. Verse 10, and at that time, uh, Joshua turned back and he captured Hazor and he put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. There's this head of this kind of anti-king league and Joshua, the servant of the Lord, this kingly figure, comes and defeats the head of the enemy armies ringing any bells he disarms him and leads God's people in victory distributing gifts Israel took the plunder I think verse 21 of uh, chapter 11 is significant as well let's have a quick look at that at that time Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites now a bit of a biblical um, a biblical quiz who are the Anakites? You can, you can speak out. Any word? Go on. Who are the Anakites? That's right. I'm assuming somebody said it. I can't quite hear. They were the ones that caused Israel great fear, right? In Numbers 13. The descendants of the Nephilim. And so I don't think it's any accident that in this kind of, in this campaign of the kind of disarming and destroying of God's enemies, that the enemies that first caused the Israelites to fear and not enter the land are the ones that Joshua destroys. He says there are only a few remained in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. And we remember one particular descendant of the Anakim that came from Gath, right? That King David slayed, Goliath. And so after this campaign in the south and campaign in the north, what do we see? Verse 23, look with me of chapter 11. So Joshua took the entire land, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal divisions, and the land had rest from war. Great, that's it. It's all over. Rest from war, rest from our enemies. No, not quite, because just like Israel, the church live in the now and the not yet of the unfolding of God's promises. Just in the same way that Joshua disarmed the enemies, disabled their ability to form an alliance and come out in power against Israel, so our greater Joshua has disarmed and destroyed our greatest enemy, Satan. He can no longer accuse us. Sin no longer has its power over us. And death no longer has the sting that it once had for us. And yet we still live in the presence of those enemies, right? We're in the now and the not yet of Jesus coming back again and finally defeating all enemies. In his first campaign, he came and disarmed Satan. And there's a time coming again 
to which he's going to place every single enemy beneath his feet. But until then, the Christian life is battle after battle after battle. But we don't face it alone, right? God's given us his spirit who dwells within us. He's given us his people, the church, who fight beside us and encourage us. And the weapon that we've got, the most powerful weapon that we've got, is the double-edged sword. The one with which we can slay our enemies. The one with which we can uh, vanquish darkness by sharing its light. And so that's what we're called to do. Chapter 12 is, um, is a summary of defeated kings. We didn't read it. Um, but... Uh, I went on holiday once to Angus, um, and we went into a manor house. And I was quite shocked when I went into this manor house, a room probably bigger than this room, and there were just heads on the wall, heads of um, deer, not. (laughs) Heads all over the wall. It was really shocking, actually. Um, And it it reminded me of of chapter 12, actually, Um, because, because what this room was saying was, look, Look what I've achieved. Look what I've conquered. Look who I've defeated. Chapter 12 is saying the same thing. Look at Moses. He's defeated two kings. Yeah, but look at Joshua. He's defeated 31 kings. That's what it says, right? Verse 24 of chapter 12. Um, Or um, for the younger audience members, maybe uh, this might um, remind you of something. This is, anybody know what this is? This is, can you see that? Probably not. Maybe look at that screen. This is the global Fortnite leaderboard. So if you don't know what Fortnite is, it's a really good game. And uh, this is the global leaderboard. And what are leaderboards? Leaderboards are essentially kind of declarations of, I'm the best. (laughs) Look at me. Look how many people I've slayed. Well, chapter 12 is a leaderboard of defeated kings. And um, if you lost 31 to 2, you'd be pretty disappointed, wouldn't you? (laughs) It's a a pretty pretty big defeat. Um, And I think... This is likely, as the the first readers read this in the land of Israel, as they look back on the book of Joshua, as they heard it read to them, and they heard all these kings that Joshua had defeated, no doubt this was there to embolden them, to encourage them, to say, look, this people, the Joshua generation that were faithful to God's word, that were faithful to his promises, look at the victory that God gave them. Look at the kings that were defeated. Look at the rulers that were demolished because of their faithfulness, because of God's faithfulness. And I think about us. How much more when we see our great king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus, the one who's triumphed over death and sin and Satan, the one who in Revelation 19 says that when the armies of the earth come against him, he's going to blow against them with the breath of his word and they're going to be destroyed. How much more should that embolden us as his people, the church, to live for him? to be faithful to his word and to trust that he will give us victory over our enemies. Yes, it'll be a battle, and actually we may feel like we're losing sometimes, but the great enemy's been disarmed and the great victory is coming. Uh, We're just uh, landing the plane right now, but let me just finish with a couple of quotes. Uh, Read this by John Piper. He says this, There is no disease, no addiction, no demon, No bad habit, no fault, no vice, no weakness, no temper, no moodiness, no pride, no self-pity, no strife, no jealousy, no perversion, no greed, 
no laziness that Christ will not overcome as the enemy of his honor. And the encouragement in that promise is that when you set yourself, Christian, when you set yourself to do battle with the enemies of your faith, you don't fight alone. You fight with the one who is victorious over death and sin and Satan. Let me finish with these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24. Would the band come up? There are many enemies and discouragements. And I think one of the greatest fears that many people have is the fear of, of death. Sahai, in our introduction, had the same. Maybe you feel the same. 1 Corinthians says this. Then comes the end when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. A day is coming where the last enemy, death, is to be done away with because our king crushed death in his resurrected life. We too shall live because of him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the great truth that um, Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, the last Adam, the king of kings, is the one who uh, will place every single enemy beneath his feet. He'll make his enemies a footstool. Thank you that the way that he conquered us, who were his enemies, is by converting us and bringing us onto your team. Thank you for your unspeakable mercy. Lord, would we uh, take hold of your precious promises? You promise uh, that uh, the legal debt against us has been cancelled through the cross and that in the resurrection of Christ, we too find life. The precious promises that you'll never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, would we grasp hold of those? Lord, would you enable us uh, each day as we rise and as we seek to serve you and live for you, recognizing that we do battle with the indwelling sin, with enemies from without, enemies from within. Lord, would you help us to cling to Christ? Would you help us to look to his life and death and resurrection as the means uh, of our journey and the means by which we seek to defeat sin in our lives? And Lord, would you help us to look ever more for the day when finally all all of your enemies and all of our enemies are truly once for all placed beneath the feet of Christ and when death itself is destroyed and we, your people, enter into eternal life. Lord, what a day that'll be. Lord, keep us to that day, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a final hymn, King of Kings. So please do stand as the band with us.